Once again, good morning. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church, and also welcome to the book of Proverbs. I don't know if you have studied the Proverbs in depth, but we are attempting to do that from our pulpit. We'll be in Proverbs between now and Uh, the season of Advent, uh, I will say that we'll take a couple of Sundays off the next two Sundays. We'll spend some time in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because uh, we need to be reminded of how important it it is for us to serve one another in the church body. So 1 Corinthians 12 next week and the week following and then back into Proverbs. We're in Proverbs chapter 7, so if you could open your Bibles there, we'll be looking this morning at the entire chapter. Little theologians, in the middle of this section, you'll find that there is a father who is looking out a window, and he's looking to see what's happening in the streets beyond his own house. Would you work on drawing a picture of that? Someone looking out a window to see what is going on in the world. That's what the Father is doing in the middle of this passage, but by God's grace, he is given understanding about what's happening in the world. He's not just watching the world. God is teaching him about how the world works and how people work. That's happening as he looks out the window. So maybe you can draw a picture of that as we spend time in this long passage. Again, we're in Proverbs chapter 7. Would you join me in prayer before we read the passage? Please pray with me. Father, we trust that you give us understanding, not merely by the application of our intellect, reading carefully, slowly, but that you give us understanding by your Holy Spirit that then we might truly understand what you have for us. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be enabled as we spend time in this passage. Give us understanding. Give us application as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness." And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. 
He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter where a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This is the word of our Lord. Now, of course, I never want to uh, apologize for Scripture, but I don't, I don't mind confessing to you this morning that uh, this subject matter of adultery, of illicit physical intimacy, this subject matter is rather wearing on me. I especially feel for those of you who are newer to Covenant, you might think over these past few Sundays uh, that this is all we talk about here at Covenant, I wonder. And really what we're doing, as you know, are simply following the course of a mother and father's instruction to their son as we have that here in the book of Proverbs. It was back in Proverbs chapter 5 where we first met the forbidden woman. And then in the latter half of Proverbs chapter 6, we met her again and there she's called the evil woman, the adulteress. At each point, the father and mother are warning their son about the danger of not simply being seduced, but the danger of following your own desires wherever those desires might take you. I think the Proverbs 6 verse 25 is a fair summary of what the mother and father are after in their instruction to their son. 625 says, do not desire her beauty in your heart. And that's what's happened, or that's what may happen to the son Desire might get the best of him. Our own desires do occasionally, though, get the best of us, don't they? I mean, just think about yourself as a bundle of desires. What if you got every desire you ever desired any moment you desired it? And while it isn't bad to desire, desire can lure us to unsafe places. We know this, each of us, by experience. The person who, for instance, desires their vocation, well, that's something that all of us would like. We would like to have a job in which we desire those tasks which we are paid to do. But desire for your job shouldn't consume you so that you're working 70 hours a week, uh, no rest, never seeing your family. Right? That would be a, a, a bad desire, desire uh, that is misused. But Make no mistake about it, God has given us the ability to have desire, and he's given us good desires. Desire for work is good. Desire for sleep, for food, uh, for uh, parties, for creativity, for excitement, for art, and even desire for physical intimacy. God has made us able to desire. But desire needs to be put in its proper place, doesn't it? Desire needs to be ordered according to God's purposes for God's children. When our lives are nothing but a bundle of disordered desires, our life is a mess. 
Some of, the, some of us know that by very close acquaintance. Unbridled desires just makes a mess of our lives. We become, in the language of the New Testament, the kind of people who are slaves to their passions. Life centered on gratifying our desires, well, that's a very dangerous life. It's a life filled with laziness, anger, lust, worry, addiction, promiscuity, drunkenness, envy, and so on and so on and so on. We do desire, but we mustn't be just a cataclysmic bundle of gratified desires. Now, in our passage, we are meeting someone who is called the adulteress. And this time we're meeting her in the form of a story or or perhaps even a parable. And what the parable is really telling us is uh, how the desire for physical intimacy works. And in this parable, I want us to see that the father is being very evocative. The language is borderline racy. He's firing our imagination, this father is. But just as much as this parable is graphic, filled with detail, and just as much as this parable is actually tragic, you see at the end of the parable it ends in death. Now this parable is a part of the father's good instruction for his son. This parable is very practical, very purposeful. The parable is here to assure us of something, and I think this is the something that the entire passage is about. Listen carefully. The parable is here to assure us that God has equipped us with all we need to order our desires. God has equipped us as his children with all that we need to order our desires. And the outline of the sermon is going to be a little bit unique, at least unique for me. The parable you see is right in the middle of the passage, verses 6 through 23. That's the parable. But the father doesn't want this parable to be all that his son hears. And so he surrounds the parable, bookends the parable, you see, with instruction. And so where I want to begin is I want to begin with the very center of this passage and just spend some time looking at the parable. But where I want to finish is the bookends of the parable because in those bookends we find the application What we're supposed to do, having heard our mother and father uh, tell us a story like this. Well, let's look at the parable. I'm sure you agree with me that this is a parable about a very tragic event. But you see the setting of the parable in verse 6. The father, he is peering out of the window of his house through a lattice, perhaps so as not to be seen. And he sees a young man who's doing something and he shares what he sees with his own son. I wonder if any of us have received this method of training when we were young. I can vaguely recall my father uh, pointing out individuals and telling me not to be like them. It's a strange memory, but I spent time uh, growing up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and for whatever reason, uh, growing up, there were a lot of hitchhikers, or it could be just that as a third grader, uh, I was very sensitive to hitchhikers, and I remember my father, as we're driving down the road, pointing out to hitchhikers and uh, describing something that has gone badly or, or sourly with that person's life and telling me not to be like that person. That's a strange memory. I'm not sure... Uh, altogether what my dad meant by that. I don't think my dad was uh, angry. 
It's hard to remember a a situation where a parent would point out someone and say, uh, don't be like them. It was more likely that um, my parents would point out someone and say, be like them. We would have a special guest in the home, and after they left, my uh, mom and dad would uh, elevate this person, tell me stories about this person to encourage me to be like them. In this parable, the father is actually pointing someone out and saying to his son, don't be like them. That's an interesting uh, methodology of teaching, don't you think? And and the father, he is uh, really telling his son a parable. And, And I don't think that the father is actually recounting something that he is seeing play out uh, just uh, on the street below his window. I mean, I don't see how he could take in all of the details of this parable. It's not simply uh, recording what's happening and then telling his son what he recorded. No, I think the father is doing more than just seeing By the power of the Holy Spirit, the Father is actually understanding a thing or two about what is happening in the world around him. We've seen this in Proverbs already, haven't we? Uh, That to be a Christian is to not only understand what a Christian is like, it's to understand what non-Christians are like as well. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit, God uh, teaching us about how the world and how humans work. And the Father, he already knows a thing or two about how desire works. Notice all the things that he notices uh, here in this passage. He is seeing something about the adulterer, how the desire of the adulterer works, but he also sees uh, how the desires of the adulteress work. And he's telling this to his son in the form of a parable because a parable is clear. Even a child could understand. Think about that. A racy, nearly scandalous story told in the form of a parable, which is the clearest, easiest form for which someone could understand. He wants his son, almost of any age, to understand what God has told him about the ways of the world and the ways of people. And Jesus often taught by parables. Uh, Parables uh, have this unique ability to uh, capture an inner reality, an inner truth of a subject, and to hold that truth out. Uh, We, of course, know that parables require some time, some thoughtfulness, some contemplation. But Jesus said that with a parable, you could understand the secrets of the kingdom. And this parable allows the Father to speak about something that is very personal something that is oftentimes very difficult to talk about, but to do so in a clear, hard-hitting way. Do you remember how the prophet Nathan told David about uh, his uh, 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 stealing uh, Bathsheba, uh, killing uh, her husband? Well, Nathan told David about David through a parable. You see how the parable uh, begins. It begins with the father uh, looking out the window. But uh, look, if you will, at verse 9. You see what the father sees in his mind's eye, a young man who is beginning his own adventure when the entire world is ending theirs. You see verse 9, at the twilight of the evening, just as it's beginning to get dark. We know for certain that this young man, he's not passive. He's very active. When everyone else is sleeping, he comes alive. 
Uh, It's important to see in verse 9 that the desire has already fired in his heart. He is on the prowl even before he sees the adulteress. That's very important. That's the problem according to uh, the book of Proverbs. It's our desire. It's not the individual who's tempting us. This man is already on the prowl. And you see in verse 10 that a woman meets him, and it's not an accident. She's dressed for the occasion. Her heart is ready for action. And then you can scan down to verse 15, and you find there that she is even eager to meet him. Almost feels like a divine appointment. They come together. He's on the prowl, and she is eager to meet him. In fact, she's so well prepared. Look down at verses 16 and 17. She's actually prepared her home before she left it. You see that. She has uh, prepared this bed for what she hopes to happen later in the day. And the father gives us a little bit of the background of this young man, or I'm sorry, of the adulteress in verses 11 and 12. She's loud and wayward. You might be saying she is tumultuous. She's the kind of woman who overturns social norms, social conventions. Maybe that's what he means by loud. By wayward, he means that she is stubborn. She's utterly unteachable. In verse 14, uh, there's something religious that seems to have happened in her life, that there was a religious practice that she took care of in preparation. My, how prepared she is. She diligently took care of her daily offering so that she could do what she's about to do with a good conscience. Her conscience, in her mind, is good, and she wants that good conscience to actually uh, transmit to her prey. She wants to say to this young man, look, God is on our side. I was religious this morning. But also, timing seems to be on their side as well. Verses 19 and 20, uh, she says to this young man that her husband just so happens just so happens to be on a long journey. He's not expected any time soon. She's actually saying to the man, not only are we prepared religiously, we're prepared circumstantially, and in fact, we can do this tomorrow as well. And if the young man had any doubts at all, she is answering them one by one by one. Verse 21, she is persuading. She is compelling. Uh, She, in a sense, is dialing up the marketing with smooth speech. And we put all of this together, and we, we know what is going to happen before it happens. You see in verse 22 how the father tells this to his son. All at once he follows her. He's sold. He's got it. He's done. He's convinced. There's no reservation whatsoever. Uh, Everything has been taken care of. But he was really sold already, wasn't he? I mean, look, look back again at verse 8. He was already hoping that this would happen. How desirous was he? Well, look at verse 8. He's passing along the street near her corner, near her road, near her house. He wanted it as much as she did. The parable's a grotesque tragedy. The adulteress uses what she has to get what she desires. The adulterer gets what he desires by using what she has. They are a perfect match for each other. And not only are they a perfect match in the the occasion of this uh, sinfulness, uh, they're a perfect match in, in terms of their ultimate destination. 
you see in verse 23, the father says to his son that this young man, what he's just done, it's going to cost him his life. Verse 23. But the father's also saying to his uh, son about the adulteress, that this adulteress, verse, uh, uh, verse 27, uh, she has a house that's not simply on a street with a corner, but she has a house that's deep in the chambers of death. Verse 27, you see that. They're a perfect match for each other, not only in this life, but apparently on the eve of the life to come. Well, that's the parable, but I want to share with you that uh, folks come into my office uh, all the time with a variety of parables that is their own life. This scene in this parable, I want all of us to understand, is not an utterly foreign scene. Now, to be sure, we perhaps have not gone as far as this adulteress goes or as far as the adulterer goes. That may be true. But right here in this room, there are those for whom they have gone that far with the adulteress. But there is something about this parable that is applicable to everyone. And I know this by experience because people come into my office asking to speak with me. Sometimes it's an issue of discernment, a job to accept. Uh, Sometimes it's just a difficult situation that they're in. Sometimes it is a a smaller sin, the kind of sin uh, that uh, the uh, individual is not too afraid to talk about. But sometimes the sins are larger, very difficult to talk about indeed. They come into my office and the discussions are a little bit like this parable. Discussions about desires. Desires that some days are tamed and some days much less tamed. Desires that uh, can be only described as uh, deep and serious temptations for which the individual may feel as though they have no resources at all. One of the things that is striking to those who come into my office is how the tool for dealing with those varieties of temptations is the same whether or not the temptation is small and seemingly manageable or large and outrageously unmanageable. The solution, the tool, it actually doesn't change Sometimes we think uh, for our small temptations, all we need are just these little micro-adjustments, and for that, we're going to do things like uh, treasuring God's Word. But for things that are larger, more serious, I need a larger, more serious tool. It's almost as if the ball-peen hammer is okay for some uh, minute adjustments in my life, but when there is a real serious fender bender, the ball-peen hammer needs to be replaced with a sledge. But God has equipped us with all that we need to order our desires. To order desires that don't pose an extraordinary temptation and also to order desires that pose a very big temptation indeed. God has equipped us with all that we need to order our desires and that's what I want us to look at now. 
Not the parable itself, but rather the bookends of the parable. What comes before and what comes after. There are two applications before the parable, and there's a single application at the very end of the parable. And I want us to look at these applications by way of conclusion. I get that it's the second point of the sermon. The first point was the parable. But this second point of the sermon is going to teach us three applications. Two before the parable and one after. Here the applications are. The father tells to his son that he must treasure the instruction that he already has. Treasure the instruction you already have, he says to his son. And the second application is this. He tells his son to long for the marriage that you already have. We'll have to uh, maybe flesh that out a bit. Long for the marriage that you already have, my son. And then he says, stay on the path you are already on. Treasure the instruction you already have. Long for the marriage you already have and stay on the path you're already on. Uh, Treasuring the instruction you already have. Just the first three verses of our passage. Look at the numerous ways in which the father uh, describes the attitude that his son must have for God's instruction. Well, you can see that it's the instruction of the father, but really this is instruction for uh, God or instruction of God. You see in verse 1, keep my words, treasure up my commandments. And not only treasure up my commandments, you notice this treasure up my commandments with you. Uh, Hold them close to you. In many ways, he intensifies the attitude with which the son must have towards the teaching of the father and the teaching of God. In verse 2, it's keep my commandments and live. The very key to life, the sustenance, nourishment, the the sun for a plant, the, the soil for the roots. Keep my commandments and live. This is your key to life, he says in verse 2. Also in verse 2, keep my teaching is the apple of your eye. Isn't that a strange expression? But we all know what it means. The apple is a Hebrew word for the pupil, a delicate, precise, precious part of your body. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. It is precious. Guard it. Keep it. See everything in the world, in fact, through that teaching. In verse 3 as well, uh, bind them on your fingers, probably a reference to a phylactery that uh, Hebrew boys would uh, attach to their bodies, uh, uh, verses that are connected to perhaps the the fingers so that they're always visible, uh, so that they're always impacting the actions. God's word should be everywhere and inside every part of the sun. I think verse 3 is the climax, actually. The father tells his son to keep the words, treasure them up, uh, keep the commandments and live, uh, keep them the apple of your eye, bind them on your fingers. And he says in verse 3, write them on the tablet of your heart. We've talked about this before, that the heart in a Hebrew understanding is that, that uh, animating principle, that energy that informs uh, everything that you do, everything that you say, everything that you think, everything that you feel. All of that comes from the heart, and he's uh, telling the son to allow God's word to infiltrate everything about who he is. Now, I want us to think about this for a moment. You know, God doesn't say to us, I'm giving you my word, now it's up to you to simply read it and to memorize it, to meditate upon it, to believe it, to walk in it. 
That's not exactly what God is saying here, and it's not exactly what the Father is saying to the Son. When the Father says that His Son is to be engaged in uh, writing upon His heart the instructions that God has for Him, this actually is a promise that is made to the people in Jeremiah's day that God would keep. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, God says to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says to the population of Jerusalem. This is the covenant that I will make. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, the Father's saying to the Son that God hasn't left us to simply wander aimlessly through life, and He's not even left us to uh, find His Word and to take that Word and and inculcate that Word in our lives. Uh, What the Father is saying to the Son is He's saying that God is there to speak to you, my Son, that God is there to give you understanding, my Son, that God is there to uh, actually uh, help you infiltrate your life more and more with His own Word. The Son's not alone. And you're not alone. And as the size of the temptation grows larger and larger in your life, your job is not to find a better solution than the instruction that comes to you in God's Word. This is what God has for you. Small temptation and large temptation. The Father is saying to the Son, treasure the instruction that you already have. And before moving into the parable itself, the the father tells the son, secondly, to long for the marriage that you already have. Now, in verse 4, you see the word sister, and I want you to ignore that word sister for just a moment, because verses 4 and 5 are all about an intimate relationship. There's this conversation that's taking place in this relationship. You see in verse 4, the son is told to speak to wisdom, say something to wisdom, The son has some kind of intimate relationship, and this intimate relationship is such that the son can speak to the instruction that dad has for him. And in this intimate relationship, God is actually keeping the son from the forbidden woman. God is actually guarding the son from the poser with smooth words. The father is saying to the son, the son's not alone. When you're struggling with ferocious temptation and you come to any of our pastors here and ask how to deal with it, you are going to hear us talk about the instruction of God and Holy Scripture, but you're also going to hear us saying to you, if you're a believer, you are not alone in this. There's an intimate relationship that's here, and the Father doesn't want the Son to forget that relationship. And the relationship is indeed so intimate. The best imagery for this relationship is that of marriage. Now, I get it. The word sister is in that passage, and that might just kind of ick you out when you think about the picture of image. But you need to know that most commentators believe that this deeply personal, deeply non-sexual, deeply communicative relationship is best image in the relationship with a wife. And in fact, there's numerous examples in the ancient poetry of this era um, in which a sister is an affectionate way that a man would have for describing his wife. In fact, we see this in the Bible, in the Song of Songs. Solomon says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. 
In verses 4 and 5, the imagery is one of marriage. And this is the kind of relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. He is our husband. And we're not alone. This Christ is the husband who not only loves us, he gave himself up for us. He sanctifies us. He cleanses us. He washes us with his word. He removes our spots. He removes our wrinkles. He removes our blemishes. He makes us perfectly presentable to his own standards. He does that, Christian. And if you trust in him for salvation, this is the promise that God makes to you. Your husband is perfect and always with you. And when you stumble and fall, he is there to help you. He desires your holiness and your purity more than you do. This husband is with you always. In fact, you can look in uh, chapter uh, 3 of Proverbs and you can see some funny ways in which wisdom is described. Uh, Wisdom is described as watching over you when you lie down. Uh, Wisdom is described as making your sleep always sweet. And wisdom is described as being there when you awake. And wisdom is described in Proverbs chapter 6 as talking to you. Doesn't all of that sound like a glorious, beautiful marriage? Christian, we forget this about our lives. You know, we uh, listen to a lecture, we take good notes, we memorize the content. That's one thing. But we're called as Christians to actually have a personal relationship with the one who is teaching us. Because the one who is teaching us loves us and encourages us and is always with us. So while verses 1 through 3 tell us that we must treasure the instruction we already have, verses 4 through 5 tell us that we must long for the marriage that we already have. There's one more application, and it comes at the very end. I want us to uh, see this in verses 24 through 27. Treasure the instruction we already have, long for the marriage we already have, and stay on the path you're already on. You know, the main figure of this parable, the young man, do you know how this young man is described? In fact, let me ask you this question. Do you wonder if the young man is a Christian or not? Have you thought about that? Think about that this afternoon. This man, is this man a Christian man? The way he's described is he's described in verse 7 as someone who is simple. He's also described as among the youths, but he's actually described in that which he lacks. He lacks sense. And most commentators understand that this young man is someone who has a kind of commitment to God, but their commitment is very weak. They're not without commitment. This may very well be a Christian who is very immature or very perhaps new in their walk. In fact, we would hope that they're new rather than immature, but it doesn't matter. They're not on the fence about who Jesus is. They just follow him very feebly. They compromise, they vacillate, they pause. And if you think about that, now turn to verse 25. Where the father, he says this to his son, he says, Let not your heart turn aside. Don't let your heart turn aside. Do you know what he's saying to the son? He's saying, my son, your heart is already committed. Your heart already has a direction. It's been sent in motion in one, in one direction. And what your job is, my son, is to not let it turn aside. 
Okay, so you know I'm a, I'm a literature major. I, I love parsing at this level in God's word. But what we have to understand from this is that the father is saying to the son, you, you don't have to invent a new heart, my son. You, you don't have to become a new person. What God has done, he's done. And now your job is to hold on to that which he has done. The theologian uh, uh, John Owen said that our, our heart is a new creation, but it's a new creation that still needs to be exercised. But it's a new creation. Everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ has been given a new heart. And that heart has a plan. It has a direction. That heart will reach God's target, and that is to be with God himself in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a great encouragement to the son, even though we read this as if it's a bit of a threat. Don't let your heart turn aside. Son, your heart has a direction. You are a new creation, and God has sent you into his very presence more and more deeply. In fact, more deeply than you could ever understand. God has equipped us with all that we need to order our desires. That's what the father is saying. Though the parable is scandalous and scary, the father is encouraging the son with with these applications. And the final one is the father being able to say to his son, son, your heart already has a plan. You are not neutral. You do not need to reinvent yourself. You belong to God. Now watch that heart. Don't let it slip from its direction. But that heart will reach God's goal. Now, very quickly, and then we'll pray. If you have struggled with adultery mightily indeed, in fact, struggled to such a degree that uh, you're not willing to share that struggle with anyone at all, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, that struggle does not own you. As a Christian, you are not defined by this parable. You need to hear that. And if you uh, haven't succumbed in exactly this way in this parable, you haven't, uh, so to speak, uh, gone as far as the adulterer has gone, uh, you still know about temptation for physical intimacy with another person. And you need to know that that desire is meant to be gratified only in the context of marriage between man and woman. And while that's true... You need to know this. God doesn't have a secret pill for you to take to remove that desire. God has told you to treasure the instruction that you already have. God has told you to long for that marriage that you already have. And God has told you to stay on that path that you already are on. Don't think there's something lacking in God. He is with you. And he has equipped us with all that we need to order our desires. This is his grace. Do join me in prayer. Father, your grace, it just takes uh, several different shapes. Uh, The benefits of redemption can be described in a myriad of ways. In fact, probably for all eternity, so rich are the benefits of the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. Would you remind us of that even as we struggle with temptation, even as we struggle to order our bundle of desires. We thank you for being with us in Jesus, our Savior. Amen.